Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Joanna Bucknell and you are listening to Talking About Immersive Theatre podcast or TAIT, which is T-A-I-T for short. So this is a super exciting new strand of Tate. So we have Tate proper where I go and I talk to immersive makers about the work that they do, which will be continuing. And there'll be some more content in that strand coming up very, very soon, which I'm excited about. Um, But what this episode marks is the collaboration between Tate Podcast and Immersive Experience Network to bring to you some of the content from the Immersive Experience Network's networking events, their live events, their huddle events. And so this is the first instalment of that. So on the 20th of February at Bridgewell Theatre in London, the Immersive Experience Network held its first creative huddle, which was writing for creative experiences. Um, There were three different speakers. I'm going to be bringing you those in a bite size. And then there was also a panel discussion. So this first instalment of the Tate IEN huddle collaboration um, is Owen Kingston's section of the evening from Parabolic Theatre, where he talks about adaptive narrative. So I am going to stop talking and let you access that talk. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name's Owen. I'm the artistic director of Parabolic Theatre. Uh, we're going to talk about writing, writing for immersive theatre. Uh, there was a little asterisk on it in the uh, uh, the thing you saw a minute ago, and obviously, you do, you, when we talk about writing, we talk about creating. Really, we're not always talking about writing. Um, We're going to start with a couple of quotes. Nobody knows anything. Not one person in the entire motion picture field knows for a certainty what's going to work. Every time out, it's a guess. And if you're lucky, an educated one. That's William Goldman, uh, Hollywood mogul William Goldman, speaking about uh, the Hollywood movie industry, which is decades older than the immersive experience industry. So if he has no clue about anything to do with movies, then we have even less clue uh, about immersive theatre. Important to remember, right? Second quote. Immersive theatre shows are like farts. Every creator prefers their own product <laughs> and is at least a bit disgusted by everybody else's. Right? Owen Kingston. Thank you. Um, I say that because I have never met an immersive experience creator who didn't at least secretly think that their product was the absolute pinnacle of the industry, right? And I'm no different. I I think that about my own work. I think, let's just be honest, right? If we're in here and we we have the passion and we go out and we actually make this work, we kind of have to believe that because that's all that's going to carry us through the dark times and everything goes wrong and we feel really rubbish about ourselves, yes? So I'm just being honest about that up front because I'm going to talk about Parabolic's work a lot today alongside other sort of styles of making immersive work. And I, when I talk about Parabolic, I tend to talk about it like it's the best thing since sliced bread because I believe that. Um, but I know on some level that is ridiculous, right? And I'm just being honest about that up front. 
But the important thing to remember is there is no such thing as a perfect immersive show because everybody's idea of immersive theatre is kind of different and everybody's ideal is kind of different. And the perfect show for me is not necessarily going to be the perfect show for you or for anybody else for that matter. But it will be the perfect show for some people. And when people ask me what sort of show should I make, I always say make the, the show that you want to see because if you do that, you'll do it well. Well, you've got the best chance of doing it well. And there will be other people out there for whom that is an ideal or very close to ideal form of immersive theatre as well. So I'm just saying that up front because if I sound like a bit of a twat later, uh, at least I've been honest with you now and said I know I can sound like that. Right, so that's that. Get that out of the way. Um, good places to start. There are three good places to start, I think, with writing an immersive show. One of them is the idea... Obviously, you know, you've got a great concept. It might be that you're doing an IP-driven show, in which case kind of the IP is the idea. It might be that you've come up with the most genius idea that anybody has ever come up with in the history of immersive theatre, or it could be somewhere in between the two. Um, whatever it is, the idea is an obvious place to start, but it doesn't have to be the starting place. And frequently in my own work, it hasn't always been the starting place. We have buildings, places, locations which you have very little control over a lot of the time. And sometimes you get lucky and you get offered somewhere that you can make a show. And that then provokes an idea. Similarly, resources, whether that's money, people's time, stuff, whatever it is, that can dictate what you're able to do. You might have the most incredible idea for an immersive show ever. But if you haven't got the money to make it or the place to put it on, then it's not going anywhere. And I think it's perfectly valid to have your ideas shaped by those other two factors. You know, it's a temptation to be all kind of artistic purist about it and be, no, this idea must happen in exactly this way, otherwise it's going to fail. That's not necessarily the case in reality. Often you, the creative limitations of those other two factors will put you in a place where you make something better than you would have dreamed up if you had no limitations at all. And I think it's just important to puncture that sort of aesthetic purit uh, puritanism, whatever it is. Uh, but we're here to talk about the idea, not the other two things. You can easily do a session on buildings and a session on uh, money and, and resources just on their own. We're not here to do that tonight. We're here to talk about the idea, the concept. What is your show going to be? I can't help you with that. <laughs> because it's going to be your idea. And if you're sitting here thinking, oh, I'd love to do an immersive show, but I haven't got any ideas, maybe you're in the wrong job, <laughs> honestly. Because most creatives that I speak to haven't got a problem with having ideas. They've probably got more ideas than they're ever going to know what to do with, and a lot of them may never come to life. Um, so you, you're going to have an idea, however you arrive at it at some point, and, and good luck with it when it comes. What we're here to talk about is what you do with it next. Structures. Now, uh, there are really only a handful of structures for immersive theatre that we see on a daily basis, Right? I, I've put four on this list, in case you're wondering how many things are going to fill up on the screen. It's going to be four. Um, there's probably, you might be able to think of more. You might be able to think of things I've missed. There's almost certainly going to be things I've missed. There are substructures above, uh, underneath, you know, more overarching structures. Uh, if you think of something I've missed, uh, I don't care. Don't come and tell me. This is just for <laughs> illustrative purposes, right? But free-roaming voyeurism... We, 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 we probably all have an idea of what that is. If you've seen a punch-drunk show in your life, and if you haven't, why are you in this room? Um, that's what I would call free-roaming voyeurism. Uh, and it's voyeuristic because you're not there really to interact, you're there to watch. Uh, and the, the cool immersive bit of it is you can go anywhere you like and you can decide what you want to see. And it's brilliant. That's how I got into immersive theatre, was through punch-drunk. I absolutely love that kind of work. 
there's uh, sand, what we call the sandbox. Uh, if you've ever seen anything by um, Secret Cinema, they nowadays particularly build elaborate sandboxes, worlds of a movie that you can go and spend time in and enjoy, and hopefully they've filled it full of toys that you can play with. Because let's be honest, a sandbox that's just got sand in it is not going to entertain you for very long. Part of the joy of building a sandbox show is you fill it full of toys that the audience can play with. There's game... This isn't working very well. Game theatre, which does what it says in the tin. There's usually a core game or game mechanic that, the, that a show is then built around. Uh, we can probably all think of examples of that. And there are some great companies that make work like that. If you've ever seen anything by Colab, a lot of their work is like that. Parabolic does a lot of shows that are game-driven. Uh, Exit Productions makes some of the finest game-driven stuff I've seen. Coney have been doing it for years and years. Uh, and then there's the carousel. Now, this really was the dominant form of immersive theatre when I started working in immersive theatre. And we all will recognise the carousel show instantly, I think. Uh, you have a small group, usually a small group of audience, that go into a room, they have a scene, they move on to the next room, and another group comes in behind them, does the same scene, and everyone moves around like a carousel until they're spat out the other end. Uh, Yumi Bum Bum Train, uh, make that, they popularised that hugely. Uh, if you want to see really good examples of carousel work, uh, Les Enfants Terribles, their Alice Adventures Underground, show which is coming back uh, really soon that was a, a good example of that but those are the four broad structures and there's lots of kind of uh, subdivisions of that underneath there, there are lots of variants but I, I'm not sure that there are many more beyond that maybe there are if there are don't tell me I can't be asked there is a key decision you have to make when deciding on your structure and that is how safe and how experimental do you want to be uh, when, we, uh, when we first started Parabolic, we, were, we played it safe. We did a carousel show. Uh, it was our first show, Morningstar. Um, and it worked and it was good fun. Uh, it's worth playing it safe when you're starting out because you want something that, about what you're creating that's going to be reliably good. And if, you, if your foundational structure is reliably good, that's a, that's a safe place to be. You can, uh, you can play around with the other stuff, get used to making work. But I would encourage you to be as experimental as you can afford to be. Really, because this industry needs more than just f essentially four structures if it's going to survive longer than a decade. It really does. And it needs constant innovation. And that's something we've tried to do. Our second show, uh, we, we really went for it uh, with experimental stuff and tried to do things that we hadn't seen, but that we wanted to see. So I'm going to talk you through how we developed our first show, uh, uh, sorry, our second show, our first really experimental show uh, for King and Country uh, in a minute. If you haven't seen it, uh, for King and Country uh, was set during an alternate history of World War II. Audiences are designated survivor MPs in a cabinet war room style environment who have to step up and lead the country and repel a Nazi invasion. And that was the premise, right? That's the elevator pitch. And um, to do that, uh, we, we wanted to make interactive work. Not all immersive theatre is interactive, it doesn't have to be. Punch drunk shows are not very interactive at all, but you know, widely regarded as some of the best immersive theatre that's out there. Um, but we looked at lots of shows when we were starting out as a company, and we, I, we, we figured that at least one of these things was true of pretty much everything we saw, right? So either there was no interactivity at all, the audience just observed, or there was an illusion of interactivity. So the audience asked for input, but the, the audience were asked for their input, but the same thing happened regardless of what their input was. It was on rails, really. Or there was chaotic interactivity. That is to say, the game mechanics totally controlled the outcome of the show. And that was fair from a gameplay point of view, but not necessarily always narratively satisfying. 
Or there was limited interactivity, so things were done to you, but your response to that was kind of irrelevant. So a bit like uh, number two on that list. Uh, if you've ever had a punch drunk one-to-one, -one, that's kind of what I mean by that. Or finally, there was limited inter interactivity that was determined by a decision tree. Uh, that is to say, you could choose as an audience member option A or option B or maybe option C. But if you thought, oh, I've, I've thought of option D, and the creators hadn't thought of option D, then, sorry, computer says, no, you can't do that in our show. That's not part of what we're here to do. And that really used to frustrate me. And I just want to pause and have a little soapbox about the decision tree for a minute, because a lot of people in, uh, in this industry hold up the decision tree as the, the pinnacle of writing. And I think that's a load of old balls, uh, honestly, because it isn't. Uh, it is if you're making computer games, because that's a recorded media. So you cannot have a live person sitting next to everybody who's bought the computer game dynamically changing the computer game for the player who, and, and curating their experience. It's just not economically viable. Fair enough. Same with a choose-your-own-adventure novel. There's not, the author doesn't travel to every person's house who buys it and dynamically adapts the story in front of them. But if you have a live experience, the USP, the thing that nobody else has got, the thing that computer games don't have, is a live actor standing in front of the audience member with a brain. And so many immersive shows discount that brain entirely and tell the actor you have to do A or you have to do B. What happens if they say C? You can't do C, it's not part of the show. And that, to me, is a wasted resource. And if we pursue down a path of writing all our shows with a method that's been formulated for recorded media, then we're wasting the thing that's most exciting about our industry, as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, that's my soapbox. I've wasted a bit of time, I'm sorry. What we wanted was meaningful interactivity. Now, you won't be able to read this, so I'm going to read it out for you. I apologise. Maybe we can put it on, a, on Twitter afterwards or something. We wanted our shows to have meaningful interactivity. And we wanted all of these four things to be true for our work. I'm going to read them out. We wanted the show to not descend into chaos. Very important, right? We wanted the audience to feel like they had been told a good story well. Also important. We wanted the edges of our world to remain invisible. That is to say, if the audience tried to push the edges of the world, they wouldn't feel resistance. They would be able to, it would keep expanding to fill what the audience wanted. And finally, we wanted input from the audience to meaningfully affect the show. So in other words, we wanted to have our cake and eat it, right? And we realised that the structures that I talked about earlier didn't really allow for that, so we tried to develop something ourselves. We call this adaptive narrative. There are five key pillars of adaptive narrative. We didn't come up with them all in advance. We have discovered this over time. Firstly, strong, well-structured narrative. And that's pretty much all the time I've got to talk about. It will be about that today and not the other four. But also, robust, flexible architecture that supports the narrative. Live curation, a games master, storyteller. A cast of excellent, empowered improvisers. And a fully realised world. Those are the things that we wanted to have in our shows. And so we came up with something. Uh, I, I've spent a lot of time before I did immersive theatre in the film industry. And uh, I've read a lot of screenwriting books. And I love uh, writing theory that comes out of some of those books. If you've ever read Story by Robert McGee, uh, or Save the Cat by Blake Schneider, or The Hero's Journey uh, by Joseph Campbell, or any of the stuff that surrounds you know, that kind of thinking... Uh, that stuff is absolute gold for writing in any medium. It's not just for screenwriters. And nobody had really, as far as I could see, applied some of that thinking to immersive theatre before. So we sat down and I tried to distill down what are the absolute bare essential plot beats for an immersive show that you really need to hit to still give that audience the feeling of a story world child. We were trying to boil down the most primal, the most basic 
uh, plot beat structure. And we came up with ten beats, most of which are drawn out of Blake Schneider's book, Save the Cat. If you've not read this stuff, why not? All right? If, you're, if you want to write things, if you're a creator, you need to dip into other mediums uh, from time to time to get useful stuff. Adapted narrative plot beats. So, firstly, the setup. So in Fakian Country, we invited people into the space for half an hour before. We doors opened at 7 and show starts at 7.30. So people would have half an hour in the space with the actors. They could explore the space. They could read the stuff that we put down there. They could just absorb the tone of the world. Uh, and it also gave them an opportunity to buy a drink or six. Very important. Um, theme stated. What is the story about? You need to know this. I don't mean the plot. I mean, what is it trying to say about the universe, about life? In For King and Country, the, the, the whole point of that show was an opportunity for people to be the hero, to step up and do and repel a Nazi invasion, be part of that. And to answer that question, if I was put in that position, how would I cope? To have something of an answer for that for themselves, to, to, to be better than they thought they could be. That was the point of it. And in screenwriting, uh, they will often say the theme should be stated early on and it should ideally be stated negatively so that the ending of the movie reverses what was said about it at the beginning. So for us, we would welcome them in and the, the staff would give them a tour of the, the bunker and they'd say, this is the least important room in the entire war effort, which of course it isn't. It's, it's supposed to be like a backup cabinet war rooms, which did exist in reality. Uh, and so they would explore it, they'd realise that very little went on there, they just kept a backup of what was going on in the real cabinet war rooms. And then you discover, at the moment of the catalyst, when a red telephone rang in the middle of the room to tell you Parliament had been destroyed and all the other MPs were dead and the people who were in the room with you had to immediately form a new government because the Nazis were moving off the beaches. That's the catalyst. That's the moment the story starts. We've stated the theme. You guys are unimportant and this room is unimportant. And the catalyst changes that forever. And there was the debate. This is something that's often left out in immersive shows because we assume that if people have bought a ticket to see our immersive show, that they're going to do whatever we put in front of them to do. And that's not wrong. They will do that. But in screenwriting terms, uh, people talk about the importance of the, uh, the protagonist having an internal struggle about whether they're going to step into the story. If you've seen Star Wars, Episode 4, A New Hope, the first one that was made, and if you haven't seen it, why not? If you've seen that film, uh, Luke Skywalker is asked by Ben Kenobi to come and join the Rebellion. But he doesn't immediately go and go, yeah, all right, and get his lightsaber and go off in a spaceship and fight the, 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 the Empire straight away. No, he spends a good 15 minutes of screen time being, oh, I'm not sure, I've got a harvest, my uncle said no. <laughs> and it's not until he discovers all his family are dead because they've been killed by stormtroopers. He's like, well, I haven't got anything left now, I'm going. Yeah, but he has that internal struggle, the debate. And the audience, when they come to your show, most of this is intimidating for audiences. We, don't, we forget that as makers, but if you've never been before, you're not quite sure what's going to happen to you because you, you know you're not going to sit in a seat the whole time. They're going to, people might talk to you and, oh, what's it going to be like? So for our uh, For King and Country show, we would invite people. Once, the, uh, once everyone's been told you're the only MPs who are left alive, we need to form a government. Who, we need to choose a prime minister. Who wants to put themselves forward as prime minister? And immediately all the keen beans are like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. But the other people who are not the keen beans, who are a little bit uncertain of what the hell is going on, will sit back and watch. And after we've put a cabinet together of five or six people and everyone's made their little pitch and people have voted for them and they've been selected, everybody in the room is like, OK, we are kind of in this together. 
And then we say to them, all right, now we're going to split into groups. Some of you are going to handle the propaganda. Some of you are going to handle the map in the war room. Some of you are going to go and write a speech to go on the radio. And people choose, oh, where would I be most useful? And they, they choose a thing. And by the end of that first sort of 20, 30 minutes of the show, everybody has had their debate internally. And they are the protagonists. Yeah, when you're making interactive work, your audience are your protagonists. They've had their debate and they've chosen to go with you in some way. And we had an excellent, we didn't have people fall out of that show. People bought into it because we gave them space to buy into it. Fun and games. This is where the audience get to experience the idea you have sold them in your marketing. It is where you deliver on the promise of the premise. If you've made a show about Doctor Who, you need to see TARDISes, you need to see Daleks, don't you, Brian, wherever he is? Yeah? <laughs> yeah? You've, you, you sell a concept to people and they, 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 there are certain things they expect to see. And you deliver that in this point of the show, the fun and games. There's the midpoint. Just when you had it all figured out, this is the moment when things twist. You thought you were fighting against the Nazis on the beaches. Well, they have a spy in the room with you. That was our little reveal in the middle of for King and Country. And they're working against you and you've got to work out who they are. There's a, a shift at the midpoint. It's really important. You can read those books for yourself and work out what that means. I haven't got time to go through it all today. Bad guys close in. It's important as you approach the end of the show that you ramp up the threat and the, the, the pushback against what the audience are trying to do. It has to feel harder. It has to get more difficult. All is lost. There has to come a moment where the audience really feel like they fucked up, like they failed. Yeah? And you see it in movies all the time. And the importance of connecting that movie storytelling logic with what happens in an immersive show is that it gives the audience the sense of a story well told. They, they recognise something of that structure. Even if they don't understand overtly the plot beats, they feel like, oh, it feels like they're in their own movie. It's exciting. Long Dark Night of the Soul. That comes after you fucked up. And you kind of work out what you're going to do and how you're going to fix it. And finally, the finale. <laughs> of course it's finally. Uh, and there's a pattern there. Again, we haven't got time to go through it. I'm aware I'm in danger of overrunning already. Now, adaptive narrative plot beats. For us, when we first started, we wanted something that we could, where we could take the audience's suggestions and we could work it into what was going on. So we needed fixed points where we knew roughly what was going to happen so that when the audience were bringing content to us, we knew that we had anchor points that, we, that would keep the show on some degree of rails so that we could still end it and it didn't descend into chaos. That's where this started. However, once we started playing with this idea, we realised that each of those fixed points didn't always have to be tied to the same event. So long as you hit the right emotional beat at the right time, what caused that emotional beat could be different every time. And I'll give you an example of this. Uh, I'll, just, uh, I'll put this up to start with. You can see this is our sort of, it's a very basic beat sheet. Our actual ones for real shows are a lot more complicated than this. But you see you've got time at the bottom, so it's about two and a half hours in length total, 10 minute intervals, and roughly where these beats need to fall based on kind of movie writing theory, really. And normally the first five or so beats will be pretty fixed because you need to get, that's, you're still bringing the audience on side and getting them into your world and, and making things work for them. But the, once you hit the midpoint, we found that actually we could change up events tied to these beats entirely and it would, the show would still work and it would still feel pretty cool. And what was great about that was we could take ideas the audience had given us in the first half and then bring them back in the second half to bite them in the bum or help them out or do something cool and interesting with. We have a rule, we, we, uh, we, uh, 
We never refuse a reasonable in-world request uh, in our shows. So if people bring us something, we try and run with it and incorporate it. Um, and, and what we found, oh, I'll give you a good example. We had a, a show called Crisis What Crisis, which was all about uh, the winter of discontent. Uh, and if you're British and you were alive in the 70s, you'll know what that is. And if you don't, well, I've got time to explain it now. It's essentially, it's a politics thing. And you were the Labour Party, right? You were the audience for the Labour Party. And uh, you were making decisions about trying to keep the Labour Party in power. It's very similar to the current political situation, actually, uh, in this country. Anyway, um, what we did was uh, we had somebody ring up uh, our people backstage, because we use telephones in the, in the room. And they wanted to talk to Rod Stewart because they wanted to get Rod Stewart to play a benefit concert for the Labour Party, right? So uh, I, I, was, I answered the call and I said, OK, well, uh, I'll try and get a number for, for, for Rod Stewart's manager. I'll just put you on hold because I was playing the operator for the building, right? So I put him on hold. And then I quickly I'd Googled who Rod Stewart's manager was in 1979. I said, right, I'm just putting you through to him now. His name is, I think it was Barry something. I can't remember now. But I told him, his name is this. And then I put him through to my friend and actor who I'd said, Rod Stewart's manager, go, right? So he takes the call. And he's being Rod Stewart's manager. He was from the East End or something. And uh, he said, yeah, yeah, we'll get, we'll get Rod to play a benefit concert for you. No problem. No problem at all. Right? Great. And that, well, that was done. The audience member was like, oh, I did something cool. Forget about it. At the Bad Guys Close-In point, for us in that show, Bad Guys Close-In was, was a fixed event. It was a, a, a radio phone-in. So the, the audience were Labour Party members who were taking phone calls from the members of the public on LBC, the, the, the British radio station LBC. And uh, so we had Rod Stewart phone in. Because uh, in the intervening time, that, that first moment happened somewhere around here. And in the intervening time, my friend, uh, who is pretty good at impressions, had been Googling <laughs> videos of Rod Stewart and trying to get his voice right. And, uh, and so he phoned in as Rod Stewart. We're doing a passable impression and said uh, they'd, put, they'd put income tax up for the, for the wealthy earlier in the show. They decided that was going to be a populist policy. And I said, you put, you put my income tax up. I'm not playing a benefit concert for you now. That's ridiculous. He got really shirty with them. And, and of course, they didn't know what to do with it. Bad guys close in. Yeah. And that came from something they had come out with. And it fitted the tone and fitted the style of the show. It can be small events like that. It can be huge events. But that's the concept of adaptive narrative. I've basically run out of time. So I'm not going to talk about devising characters. We haven't got time. And uh, that, that's the socials from Parabolic. Uh, and ask me questions later. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed Owen's uh, discussion there and his um, insight into adaptive narrative. What a fabulous uh, sharing that we have there. And it's really wonderful to be able to bring some of this content that was in a small little venue in London to a much larger audience via the podcast. So I'm really excited to be able to do that. So really looking forward to the next instalment. So episode two of the IEN Tate collaboration will be with Chloe Masheter and that will be coming up very shortly. So until then, bye.